Good afternoon, and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the last weekend of August 2022. We are definitely into the time of year that I start noticing it getting darker in the evenings. Sunset is now just a little bit after 8 p.m. It's even getting darker in the mornings, uh, enough for me to notice when I kind of wake up well before I'm ready to get up. I've noticed it's still dark some of those times as opposed to the summer when it's quite bright. It is a time of year when the plants are starting to die back more significantly, but a nice time to get out and get some berries still. Birds moving south, and never know what you might see, especially when the storms come blowing things in. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. If you had a chance to catch the Sitka Library show this morning, I was a guest there, and this is uh, something that we've done a few times before. It's a little bit of a crossover. So my show this week features a conversation I recorded with Brooke Schaefer and Carrie Sagel. We'll go ahead and join the conversation with Carrie asking me a question. Well, I have been doing more like taking drives with a friend than being out in nature and observing things, but you can't be in this space without seeing things. And it's a very typical thing that we'll be driving along, my friend and I, and we'll see something and then we'll just say, don't know, we got to ask Matt about that. And one that I can think of recently is, it seems as if we're under fog far more frequently than we have been in my knowledgeable past, which is 24 years on this island. And we wondered if you had any insights um, other than just general climate change, what might be going on that we're getting fogged out all the time? Well, it's an interesting question, because, and this one that I sort of ponder more generally uh, is, is what is it that impacts, what is it that, that sets our sense of normal for weather? And so fog, like I can remember a few years ago, it just seemed like the marine layer was there every day, but you could get up uh, Harbor Mountain and be over it, and it was great. And then I remember thinking, oh, well, this is like in my mind, I was like, well, that's pretty typical. I think it was one of the first years I was back having been away from uh, – Sitka for for the late spring and early summer because I was going to school and then I would come later in the summer and so I I just was like oh well maybe this is normal I didn't really remember as a kid that wasn't the sort of thing that 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 particular aspect of weather didn't really stick in my mind and so then I kind of expected it the next year and then I was like well it never happened again and so then this year at least lately there's been quite a bit of of fog you know we had the heavy rains and then the high pressure comes over and i think that's part of what happens it's actually not unusual that year that we had um it was juno had like record-breaking heat and it was pretty warm here and it was extended dry spell but the difference was here we had a marine layer come it wasn't fog it was a higher level marine layer so i don't know what i don't honestly know what causes something to be like a a 1000 foot you know ceiling versus a right on the ground sort of thing in terms of of those conditions it would be interesting to talk to somebody that that looks at weather and stuff but i honestly don't know you know it would be interesting to look at and have the data and say all right how often is it foggy really uh you know when this time there was planes overheading i guess pretty regularly we get that in the winter that would be one measure of you know the planes because i do know what you're maybe alluding to is that the way we experience weather now is how we're experiencing it in the moment and that our memory might be very false or that we might uh, uh, project that this is the way the future is going to be. And all we are is experiencing what we're experiencing now. Well, and it's like with fog, is, it's kind of a singular sort of event. And, and 
impressions of winter, for example, like, oh, well, I remember a few years ago, I was speaking with somebody who grew up here in the 40s. And we had a couple of cold winters, maybe it was 2006 or seven, it was chilly, there was quite a bit of snow, and a late spring. And he's like, Oh, this is finally back to the winters that it used to be like, you know, and for me growing up in the 80s, I was like, No, these are way colder (laughs) than normal, you know, but my sort of baseline for what winters were like, was set it probably from the time I was like maybe 10 to 15, kind of in a window. If you move someplace, I think it's probably the first few years you're there, they, they, they sort of set as your baseline a little bit. And you're like, oh, this is what's normal. And then when it varies from that, because uh, it's always varying from year to year, uh, and it, it's, it's just difficult. It, it's interesting the way that, at least in my experience, the same with birds and animals, like, I started putting up a a light on my porch a few years ago and then like I just had tons of this one species of moth and I've seen it every year since, but never in those numbers. And so I'm like, well, was that the unusual year or was that the, the, like the last gasp of, of normal abundance? And now I'm just seeing this depleted population. Maybe it was the light you put out on your porch. Well, but I kept the light out. And so since then I haven't. Yeah. So that's the, that's the, that's the real wonder of long-term data is being able to look back and sort of you know, make the connection between what's my experience and impressions because we aren't, because impressions are really influenced by, like, if you had to travel three times in a winter and every single time you were like fogged out, that'd been the worst winter ever, even if 90% of the days were, were, you know, fine. (laughs) But, but, you know, because of the emotional sort of impact of those days, you would remember it a lot differently than somebody else. Uh, who didn't have that experience and you know the fog was at the airport but star gavin was lovely and and those like one of these days this week where it was foggy at the airport i drove out the road and it was sunny at star gavin mm-hmm. uh and it stayed foggy at my house the whole day it's a little jarring actually to come back from bright sun blue sky and then you're like in this deep gray and you're like Whoa. there does seem to be <laughs> different weather out the ends of the road yeah. out star gavin way than than in town for sure yeah in the winter time you see a lot more snow out there I've been curious. I have these eye buttons that I set out, and I, I after being out at Green, uh, walking along Green Lake Road, and there not being as much snow as I expected earlier this year, I was like, well, maybe I should put some eye buttons out here because I don't honestly know. I expect it to be colder out there, and certainly when there is snow on the ground in town, you see more as you go out to like get out to Silver Bay. Uh, but maybe it's What's not actually colder. What's an eye button? Eye button is a little data logger, so it it measures. Yeah, I guess why would you think eye buttons temperatures? Um, Eye buttons record temperatures over time, and so I can set it to record once an hour, and it'll go for 11, 11 12 weeks before it fills up. So, so you have to go back and retrieve it, or does it? Yeah, send I can you actually. Uh, yeah, I have to go retrieve it. Um, I I can actually read it. I have a little reader that plugs into my phone, so I don't actually have to bring it back home. And I they're can, always there. Uh, where I set them, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So so they're a handy little thing just to kind of get a sense of what temperatures are like and. Uh, so I have some in a few different places, but uh, Silver Bay might be one where I, uh, a place where I, I don't have any or haven't had any that would be interesting to see, just to yeah. see how different it is. Well, speaking of temperatures and uh, winters and snow, I'm curious if your impression of this last winter, is that more familiar to you? Like that's what you would have said the winters were like here in the 80s or because I thought I thought that our winters have shifted as well. I thought we had a lot of snow this last winter and maybe it felt a little more normal as I looked to the mountains in the springtime like they were covered with snow longer. Um I feel like yeah, typically I expect or 
from my baseline of being here, like that the mountains are covered with snow into the, well into the summer. And we went through a period where they weren't covered with snow. And then this last winter, I felt like we got a lot of snow, maybe the last couple of winters. And then this summer, I noticed more snow on the mountains. I'm curious uh, if from your perspective, your baseline, Matt, if it seemed more, seems like a more typical winter scenario, snowpack. Yeah, I think partly because I've been paying attention to it this way, my baseline is sort of shifted a little bit. Like I don't really feel like I have as much of a normal baseline anymore because I've I've sort of decided that there isn't such a thing or something. (laughs) But I do like to, like one of the things I like to do is the pyramids over here. There's one little last spot of snow and I try to get a picture like just as it's the last days that it's there. And then you know the date. Right. So then I get the date that that disappears. And so like this year, it was the end of July. It was unfortunately so cloudy in July. It was it was a very cloudy July. But on the other hand, we had a very sunny and dry April, May and June. So um, the July and August have been August a little less so, but July quite, quite cloudy. And a lot of the days those peaks were obscured. So I couldn't even see. But just we got a couple of days where the clouds are up higher and I saw it. And so it's near the end of July. The latest that I've ever seen that since I started paying attention to it. And actually, I, I think I, I would just take pictures of those off enough. I mind my old pictures and then I started being intentional about it in recent years. So is that a thing with naturalists, like recording something as it happens through time and then seeing what the pattern is? Because I think about throw and going out and measuring first blooms. Mm-hmm. And now people are looking back at that data as they ponder uh, climate, but you're mentioning snow on a particular set of mountains or a spot. Is it a thing? I mean, it's for me, it's a curiosity. It's like what what I find. It's an easy enough thing to do just to take a picture, and then I have it. And what I what I I didn't. I mean, I had pictures from before, and I didn't wasn't being intentional about it. I think the first ones that I started being intentional about were pictures that I took in 2004. I was just, it was a nice September day. I went for a hike up Gavin Hill, Harbor Mountain, and I took pictures of the mountains of like, you could see Mount Bassey and Bear Mountain and the high peaks of the island. So you could see those glaciers back there. And I had those pictures for a while. And then sometime later I was up there and I took some more pictures and I was like, oh, I could compare these. And and so now, if the weather's nice in September, which it isn't always, but I try to get, I, I call it mountain snow minimum pictures. So I'll get pictures of Cross Mountain from, from out at Silver Bay. And I try to take them from roughly the same spot because that allows me in the computer to just overlay them. And then I can actually slide back and forth and you can see. Uh, and if there's even older historical, for me, it's just curiosity. How are things changing? You know, I spent some time with geologists uh, this summer who are in town looking at Mount Edgecombe stuff. And when you talk to geologists enough, your sense of scale starts to shift because we often weather is quite variable in the short term, you know, but climate is is a slower changing thing. Ice ages coming and going are slower changing Uh, sea level rising and falling with tectonic uplift and mountains rising and and coming back down uh, with with tectonic uplift and, and erosion. All of those things are happening at scales well beyond a human lifetime. Geologists are wor- used to working kind of in those scales. And as you start to think about that, you know, what, what at first feels like a fairly static landscape, it's like, yeah, trees fall down from time to time, but, you know, the forest is still the forest. And, and in my lifetime, you know, going up on trails, for example, I was just on Mosquito Cove and there's a lot of trees that came down there. And I realized um, the first 15 years or so of Mosquito Cove Trail, I don't really remember there being that many trees that come across the trail. There was a few, but not that many in the last five years. It's like every year there's a bunch of trees down over the trail. There's, you know, several more this year. 
And so I don't know, like there was one big blowdown that happened. And I wonder if that just sort of created a new situation that now these other trees that are, are more are, likely are to more blow susceptible. Down. Yeah. So there might be something like that happening. Uh, but in any case, it's kind of this dynamic thing that's happening. Um, and, and in the longer term, it's like incredibly dynamic. You know, the glaciers coming and going and the sea levels rising and falling and all of these things. So it's, it's been interesting to consider that. And I think as a naturalist, you know, to get back to your question specifically, just it's whatever you're curious about, you know, just documenting it. And then, and then you can compare it if you want to, but you don't have to. Uh, and I like to, so I do. Well, I had this thought while you were talking about observing things over time, about observing things new and fresh. And I think, uh, Brooke, about something you told me about, about a recent trip you had where you were on your boat and you saw something. Well, are you referring to? I'm referring to one or the other. Okay. <laughs> I, I feel like you're, you're, the witness is being led here, but uh, I'll allow it. <laughs> okay. Okay, great. Uh, well, it was new to um, myself and I was traveling with Paul Norwood and uh, we recently, quote, discovered uh, soda springs. And I don't know if that's really in line with things being new, but whatever. New to you, right? New to so, me, yeah. yeah. Um, it was, we arrived in a little cove in Misty Fjords called Ella Bay, and there appeared to be like a ruffle at the shore, as there often is when waves come to shore. They create a little white ruffle of of water. And, uh, but this ruffle would not stop. It didn't go away. Um, so, and we happened to be arriving as the tide was going out. So we were able to observe this ruffle kind of emerged from the water as the tide went out. And so we looked on the map just to get any further information. And right there, written in kind of faint blue on the water, it said uh, Soda Springs. And so we were just thrilled. <laughs> we I didn't know such a, I didn't know such a thing existed out here that you could go to shore, which is then what we did. We took our little raft and rode to shore and brought our water bottles. And two of the, they clearly had done a little bit of human work to the springs. They had kind of created cairns that must have tubes within them, tapping into this deeper soda spring. And so you could go up to these two tubes where then the water's just gushing out and you could fill up your water bottle. But then the whole area around it, just the beach as it is exposed or the low tide under the water is riffling with bubbles. And that's just the soda spring coming out naturally. And so I guess it's water that moves through some minerals through the earth. Maybe one of you know more about how this happens. And it's carbonated. And when I, I smelled it before I went to drink it, and it had that strong kind of sulfur smell that I associate with hot springs, actually. So that wasn't what I expected. Uh, but then it doesn't taste at all like the, the sulfur hot springs flavor. It tastes like mineral carbonated mineral water. So these cairns were built so that when the tide came up some, you could still access the pure spring water? Right. So you would have more time where you could access the water without the salt water being involved and probably just to kind of cut it off from the salt water some. And somebody sat there and did that. Of course, they weren't yeah. sitting. They I wonder. Were, yeah. I mean, it was is a it? national park. So it's probably part oh. of the you know Misty Fjords National Park that's in their territory. So they must have decided to... Um, label it and make it accessible to folks, um, which that was been, it was an interesting thing about that area is just how much is out there for folks to explore in that area. These national parks that we live in and near are pretty great. We're lucky in Sitka and then down in Ketchikan there, they're right next to national, um, Misty Fjords National Park and you just have 
cool things like natural soda springs and cabins peppered throughout the place and trails, maybe at different levels of upkeep, but still, you know, um, and lots of mooring buoys is one thing we discovered as well. So this is all in Misty Fjords. This is one of the places you've visited this summer. Right. Yeah. Uh, Misty Fjords, we spent a lot of time in the Ketchikan area. So south of Ketchikan, um, over Metlakatla, uh, kind of yeah, in that area and north of Ketchikan, I think probably as far north would have been just circumnavigating Revelagagato Island. So that's maybe, you know, maybe you're 70 miles north of Ketchikan at that point. Um, and then as you, uh, I guess, to the east of Ketchikan is this the Misty Fjord National Park. And we spent time in there as well. Mm, nice. I wonder if you, now that you've seen a soda spring, if your eyes are accustomed and you'll see more as you're in your travels. Oh, well, I'm also going to look at maps more closely, too. I mean, I don't know that they'll all be uh, labeled like that, but, um, you know, there's hot springs up in that area, too, that uh, I'm trying to remember if, there, if those were labeled. So, yeah, I mean, there's just all sorts of stuff out there. If you get out and poke around a little bit, you'll, you could find yourself uh, drinking fresh soda soda water in a a natural hot spring did it taste like uh, i mean carbonated water doesn't taste that good to me (laughs) straight uh did you were you drinking it straight and and we added we always bring uh do you guys know those little packets of emergency yeah typically when we go camping kayaking we bring that to flavor our water and so we were thrilled so the funny thing is that paul and i don't actually drink soda water like in our regular lives we don't buy it buy it from the grocery store or whatever but we were beyond delighted (laughs) to drink it when it comes out of the earth we thought it was the best thing ever we put our uh emergency in there which is a little fizzy too and you combine that with the the fizz of the carbonated water every time we would unscrew our water bottles would make that little you know we were just delighted by the whole the whole thing (laughs) (laughs) simple pleasures in the wilderness i suppose very true Yeah. Yeah. yeah Well, it's interesting. Yeah, the thing is, when you live in the lower 48, where you have road access everywhere, you know, it's not unusual for people to go on weekend road trips or whatever. I mean, it's, but if, if that's an interest to folks. I remember when I was in graduate school or undergraduate and was in Idaho or eastern Washington, there were times that I would just go for a drive and I would, you know, it'd be several hours of driving. You can drive for several hours in Sitka and cover a lot of miles over and over again. Uh, but, uh, this case I was driving out into the mountains or, or, you know, exploring those little spots on the map, not nearly so easy to do in Southeast Alaska, uh, unless you have a boat or a kayak and the willingness to, to use that. And of course it rightly or wrong and probably rightly, it feels a little safer to be on the road these days. Cars are a lot more reliable and, and there's all of those things. I think in the old days, getting out on a car was also a little bit sketchy at times, but, um, but these days, but getting in a boat, you know, you have to have a certain level of comfort with being in places where there may not be a lot of other boats around. Probably this time of year, you, I would imagine you were seeing other other sort of pleasure crafts that were exploring, touring Southeast Alaska kind of on their thing. How, how busy was it, you know, in those terms? Well, that's a great question because I was, so we were just there a couple weeks ago to go around Rivelagagato Island. And we, I presumed we were going to run into pleasure boats, just like you're saying, like all over the place. But the, what I actually saw was the opposite of that. I think we saw two boats, one of them being a small cruise ship on our trip. And my theory is that the, it, 
doing the inside passage is a very popular common thing to do for people who are often retired, you know, or it's a journey that folks like to make from down south. I'm guessing that usually starts around May. And maybe by this time of year, they've already well turned around in our past Ketchikan and are further like into Canada. They're trying to get back to Washington or wherever they may have started from before the weather turns. Mm. So because I, I was yeah, I thought that we were still still, you know, in August, I thought there'd be a lot of boats, but it was not the case. I wonder if those those sort of folks that are traveling the inside passage are sticking to kind of the main line, you know, and not really yeah. going as much into those those smaller reaches. I mean, it's interesting to say there's a lot of people from Sitka that are just like war weekend recreating, you know, they'll go over to Appleton Cove or wherever, Rodman Bay, those sorts of places to go hunting or, or just camping for a weekend, Mosier Island. West Chichikov. So there are people that are getting out like that here. And I imagine it's similar in Ketchikan as well. Well, I feel like I should clarify. I maybe was talking mostly about that uh, Misty National Fjord section. That's where mm. I expected to see the bulk of boats. Oh, okay. yeah. And that's where we we didn't. We only saw the one cruise ship. And then it was on the western side of Ravella, Kagato, that um, that's not the national park. There were more boats. They were uh, fishing boats, plenty, plenty, plenty of fishing boats. And then also definitely looked like um, locals doing their going out for their short, you know, weekend pleasure, like you were mentioning. Yeah. So I have a question for both of you. Uh, in your experiences going on adventures or going on hikes, what's the most remote you've ever felt or the longest you didn't hear a plane flying overhead or come across another hiker or another boat. Do you have some sort of like experience of just being out there by yourself for a long period of time? Oh, I like that question. That's a fun one. Um, I'd have to think about it a little bit, although the the first thing that instantly pops into my mind when you say that is a place that I might not remember the name correctly. I want to say it's called North Cape. It's in Southern Baranoff. Does that sound familiar to either of you? I might have on the, the name on the uh, ocean side on the ocean side, yeah. And and I think the reason it pops out in my mind is because that feeling you're talking about, Carrie, of like feeling alone. That might have in in the midst of where no other people are. That might have been like the first moment for a long trip where I felt that feeling, where it felt like oh, I wonder when someone else has been in this spot and I don't see any other boats and I don't see any float planes. I think there were like little puffin a little bit further south of there. I had that feeling, but by then maybe I had adjusted to the feeling. So that moment was kind of the first place I felt that. Were you by yourself? I was kayaking with Paul, so I was with one other person. And you, Matt, have you had that experience of feeling like you were away from everything? Well, it's... I mean, that's such a, a subjective sort of experience because I know that people have been all over the place. It's like I, having talked to people that have been around a while, I like to talk to people about where they've gone and, and get all those things. And I've realized that any place you think that you might want to go, somebody's probably already been there. And a lot of places you would never dream of going, somebody has also probably gotten stuck there or done something silly. <laughs> you, you know, it's just just the way that, that folks are. There's this kind of adventurous um, spirit that that inhabits a lot of people that live live here and spend time here. Uh, so I think certainly, and, and this relates sort of what you're describing before and part of why that question was in my mind about seeing other people. On the one hand, you know, you don't want to have a crowd. On the other hand, when you're out there and you're out there, like it's nice to know that you can get some help from somebody if something happens, right? So you, you want to be away, but not so far away. You, you know, there's been... 
certainly been times. And so for me, I'm not, I don't really like to deal with the gear stuff. So, and I don't have a boat. So I haven't really been out there like far, far away. But there have been times when I realized that assistance wasn't as close as it might have been nice. One of those times was, you know, just up Indian River, I went into the sisters. I was by myself and I was going up the sister that's on the left side. There's kind of between you know, there's the middle sister, the one on the left, and then Gavin Hill. And I was going up the ridge line of that. And this would have been in the 90s. My parents were away on vacation. I was home for the summer. Uh, and I didn't tell anybody where I was going. Why would I do that? And uh, I had a dog with me, our dog. And I realized while I was up there and the mountain was getting steeper and I didn't know what was above me. I didn't know if it got worse or better. I realized that if something happened to me out there, nobody would even think to look for me for a couple of weeks. This is before we were doing email and regularly and those sorts of things, or let alone cell phones. And nobody would and nobody would know where I went. I would have just disappeared. And and it occurred to me like, well, this is I should probably turn around now is basically what I decided because I was like, I don't know what it's like if I get into trouble here. Another one was when I was coming back. This was more recently, is still 12 years ago. I had um, had a, a little bit of a rough outing to uh, Shalakov. I, I had gotten dropped off at Mud Bay late and hiked over in the night, and it, it didn't work out so well. Um, but I eventually got there and had a few hours and then had to come back. And then it was just beautiful that Sunday, uh, Saturday evening. It was flat, calm, and sunny, and I was dehydrated and exhausted. And I was like looking across from like, um, where uh, Brent's Beach Cabin is uh, across towards Crow and Gagarin Island. And it was flat, calm out there. And I was like, I could paddle that, but I'm so tired. And Brent's Beach Cabin was in use. So I went over and I just like across from that, I found a little nook in, in the kayak and I just spent the night there. I got up the next morning and of course the weather wasn't nearly so nice. Uh, it was windy and I was... I was start. I was like, well, I got to go. I didn't have anything else I could do. I started paddling in. And meanwhile, the people that were coming from north, you know, out of out of like Port Crestoff area and stuff, they were all angling in, going inside <laughs> Middle Island, you know, just cutting in there. And here I am just like, <sighs> and I that was another one where I didn't really feel like I was going to die or anything. But I recognized that if I went over, if I had a problem, like I didn't have a radio on me. I had a cell phone, which may or may not have been able to get to work in its dry bag, you know. Uh, it could have been a real problem for me, uh, and fortunately it wasn't. But those kind of moments, there's there's just like, people were close. It wasn't like they were far away, and it wasn't like nobody had ever been there before, but there's still a, a sense of, of like, uh, you need to make it through this because there's an isolation there that's sort of really very real because you don't know how you're going to get in touch with anybody. I would have just disappeared in the waves and would have been too far to swim and, and you know. Who knows if I would have been ever seen again? I mean, that is the thing about here is you really don't have to go far at all to get that sense. You could go up, you know, um, like you said, in out, you can get that feeling sometimes out Indian River. I mean, I know maybe you're saying like you're on a trail then, Carrie, and like that would make you feel like you're around people. But you really can get this sense of being alone and quiet, very close to town. And you could you know yeah you 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 are still very much connected to society and you could see people even like you're explaining that but but still sort of be very alone which i think is really cool about living here and also makes it tricky yeah like what you're describing matt like it can be yeah you could get into trouble so close to home it's easy to take it for granted a little bit maybe a little too much sometimes I, i noticed that i'm much more like i think about those things a lot more with my son who's now you know, in the age of, and I think about the things that I did at the time I was his age. And one of those was that trip up into the sisters, you know, and I've encouraged him to be a little more conservative about 
communicating and letting people know, going with other people, those sorts of things. Um, but he still, you know, he wants to explore and, and part of, part of getting, it's like, I, I like to say sometimes it feels like he has more ambition than sense. And I realize it's probably has more ambition than experience. And, and so the way that you get that experience is by having that ambition and going some places that end up not being so fun. Uh, and you go, okay, maybe I don't need to do that particular thing again. Uh, so it's an interesting thing. On the other hand, you know, I met a guy this summer um, and talked to him briefly. I had gone up Beaver Lake Trail and I'd seen this guy walking a dog. So, you know, not somebody I recognize. It's not like I recognize everybody on the trails around here. But then I went back the next morning and there was the same guy and the same dog. And I was like, well, that's interesting. But this time he stopped and he asked me some questions. Turned out he was from Colorado. And I think of Colorado as being kind of a wildernessy state with lots of mountains and trails and stuff. And he was just, he, kept, he asked me two or three times about the trail. He's like, this trail is just so amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, it's nice. one of our trails here. You know, yeah. it's like, it's a, yeah, it's a nice trail, but it's like, it's a trail. It's like a normal trail yeah, for there's us. There's our you know? mountain. Yeah. And those are those wells. <laughs> yeah. So, We've seen them before. Yeah. So it was interesting. And partly because like if you'd been coming from the city, then, it, but it was like Colorado in my mind, Colorado is like this, this kind of great Western uh, landscape. And, and one of the things he said, well, one of the things he asked me is like, there was this wailing sound. What is like, it just sounded like something getting just like torn apart or something. He says, he says, what could it have been? And I was like, well, we don't have that many options. Like the way he was thinking about describing it is like a mammal. And so I was like, well, maybe it was a baby deer getting ripped apart by a bear or something. I don't know. I said, well, I, I don't know. So he told me he was staying in the campground, but was going to be leaving on the ferry that day. And, and so I kept walking. Then I, then I started hearing this wailing sound. And I was like, oh, oh, those are loons. Oh. And there were, there were three red-throated loons on Beaver Lake, which he didn't see, but it was like echoing off Bear Mountain coming back and so there's kind of this wild wailing calls oh, so cool. uh, as they were interacting which I was like that's what it that's what it was so I stopped on the way back down uh, out of the campground and, and just told him and, and he told me a little more about his trip he'd driven up here from Colorado he says I have no interest in the cruise ship experience he says I'm, this is my my big Alaska trip you know and so he was he's driven up and taken the ferry and was camping out and what he said to me that that stuck with me he said you know he said he said, there's a purity here that I wasn't, that I've been looking for and it's exceeded my expectations. Mm. And so there's that sort of sense of like, and this, this guy was at Beaver Lake, you know, that's not like a far outdoor wildernessy kind of thing. And I really appreciate having the chance to interact with somebody like that, you know, just to talk with them because it reminds me, like, I live here for a reason, mm-hmm. but it's easy because it is normal. Yeah, that's just one of our trails, you know, <laughs> I don't know any better mm-hmm. or different. Um, and so talking to him and, and, in my mind, knowing he's from Colorado, like which I think of as being this sort of uh, this this place that that when he's coming here and he's experiencing that, it, and it is so close to town, like that that is you know flying in. That's one of the things that you see this tiny little strip of of road and this massive island of mountains and trees, forest, you know, all of those things. You know, that was one thing that was interesting about being in Ketchikan this last the Ketchikan area this last trip. I also got a sense of. I mean, we all have ideas about how the different communities are different and they are very different. But I got this thing that I didn't, this experience that I didn't expect, which is that Sitka is remote in a way that a lot of, like it's a different uh, feel compared to the other communities of the Inside Passage. And part of what made me realize that is we we happened to stop by a cabin on our uh, last trip that was outside of Ketchikan area, sort of near Misty Fjords. And a lot of the entries in the cabin book, logbook were about people kayaking, um, you know, on their big kayaking trip coming from maybe Seattle or, uh, you know, 
kayaking around. They'd come move, you know, flown up from Washington and they were kayaking around Revilla as their their trip. And I felt like, wow, I go to a lot of the cabins here outside of Sitka and love to read the log books. And it's not that often that you read about kayakers. Certainly they're they're there for sure. But it made me realize like we're off the beaten path of the inside passage too. like kayakers who are coming from down south. This is not going to be on their route. They're going to stay on inside waters. Anyway, it just was a realization about, yeah, we're we're slightly outside of the norm of what the Southeast Alaska experience is. And it's really, yeah, pristine and well, You have to remote. go to a much, much, much smaller town to get less road than we have in Sitka. Yeah. Like all the Yakutat has way more road than we do. Cake has way more road. Angoon doesn't. You know, there's there's Teneke doesn't. Um, but those are much, much smaller towns. Sitka has a much more limited road system for for better and worse. I guess it depends on your perspective. Certainly there are folks that, that feel <laughs> in opposing ways, but it does shape your experience of being here and then being out on the open water as well. I think that probably really impacts kayakers. They're like, yeah. oh, no, thank you. That kayak around Baranoff Island, for example, where you're talking about being on the North Cape, like that's exposed country out there, right? And I'm, I imagine that that's part of what contributed to it. It's like you're looking out at the open ocean, this massive, you know, clearly storm-washed shoreline and and realizing just how small and tiny you are in the, in the scope of this massive ocean. And you're exposed there in a way that, that you might not feel quite so exposed in, in, you know, more protected waters. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting to think about uh, the experiences of people from cities or down south, their experience of Sitka and how it's probably a bit overwhelming. And I'm thinking about uh, an author we had come visit, young adult author, Tamara Pierce. She came with her husband, and we always try to give a good time. And she she was older woman at the time, and so we were just going to tour the island, and we dropped by the Raptor Center. It was closed, but they were so kind and actually gave her uh, a tour of the Raptor Center, and she was thrilled with the birds. And then we headed out towards Whale Park just to take a look out at the water. And this was some years ago. And they said, so will we see whales here? And I said, I've been here many times and I've never seen a whale from here. And as I said that, her husband looked out. It seemed like a mile and a half out in the sound and there was, and she was immediately engaged. And the whale was on the move and we could watch it going kind of north, what seemed away from us. And then it disappeared for a while maybe five minutes later, right in front of us, right in front of Whale Island, maybe a stone's throw, it it breached, not breached, it, uh, you know, surface. broke the surface. And um, the experience we gave her, uh, she, she had flying mystical whales in some of her books, uh, but we gave her like this life spiritual experience. I know she thought she... she she called the whales, and I can't say she didn't call the whale because I spoke the words, he spoke the words, and the whale <laughs> came to her. And uh, she went back to New York City where they observe squirrels and rats and maybe pigeons, and she had this story to tell about Sitka, Alaska, and the wonderful things we did for her. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's hard to take credit for that, right? You know, it's like he was just showing up in the place and it does its thing. And you're like, I think she did call it, actually. Yeah. And I'm not even that kind of thinker. But... <laughs> I, 
I'm, I'm she okay with it. that. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's interesting how that seems to work sometimes. And people's perspectives of like the forest. I remember going up Thimbleberry Lake Trail, which you know, it's it's to me it looks like uh, it's starting to it's starting to open up a little bit, but very much a second growth forest kind of feel. It's dark and not really, you know, just doesn't feel like the the older forests that that are, are around here. And I went with somebody who is in town for birding. I think we were just going to go check out the lake. And she's like, wow, this forest is amazing. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I mean, okay. <laughs> it's not like, I don't, I don't want to rain on her parade or anything, but like in my mind, I just, it's, but even, even what to me seems like sort of the, the not like fullest uh, version of, of the forest here is impressive to somebody who's coming from, you know, Texas or somewhere else where that's just not what it's like. And so it is, yeah, I always, yeah, I appreciate, I like, I don't want to be places where I'm new. I, I very much prefer to go places that are familiar with me and sort of deepen my understanding and experience of them. Uh, but there's a loss that's that, right? When you have the ability to see something new, it's exciting. And so to being able to speak with people, and I get that in small ways by finding new species, but, but to be out with somebody for whom this is the new experience, right? You get a little bit of a chance to kind of, vicariously have that experience and that reminder of of the power of this place just as as that and so it's a little bit yeah it's an interesting dynamic you know just sort of observing that in myself as someone very uninclined to travel away from here i still get that feeling i think i wonder if um maybe because i didn't grow up here but there are times when I, I can still access that feeling i like where i want to pinch myself where i'm like how did i get this life like, how am I really right here? And I get to just take a kayak and go into the ocean. Like, this is beyond my wildest dreams. Like, I feel like this can't be right. <laughs> There's got to be a mistake. I don't. How can I get to be doing this? So and I wonder if, yeah, maybe because I don't know, I had lived in Chicago before I came They're here. That was not an option. To Sitka. What? They're coming to revoke your ticket yeah. to Sitka. Like, right? you, nope. you don't belong here. <laughs> you got to go. Um but I think, yeah, we are so lucky to be here. It's pretty cool. Sometimes I think, though, I lived in Iowa for a long time, and I think Iowa is gorgeous. And when I say that to people, they think I'm crazy. And I think, well, what is it about, you know, living in a place where the beauty just smacks you upside the head every day and you don't have to work at your thoughts when you look out at what covered in snow looks like the prairie, mm. you know, and that beauty in the, the, the snow is purple tinged as the sun has set. And it's so beautiful. Mm. And people that live in New York City and maybe in, in uh, old high rise buildings and have to find a way to see beauty in their surroundings, <laughs> try to find natural beauty in that. Yeah. And here we, we can, you know, be happy that we're here and we are pinchable happiness but then again it's it's not like always a, di a difficult thing to right. achieve it is one of the things when i was in i was in southern idaho for three years and then eastern washington for another six and there were a lot of people that complained about the palouse never mind that there are photographer workshops that go to the palouse because of its beauty the rolling hills this is a palouse is the a region in eastern washington a little bit of northern idaho which is these rolling hills of of grain oh. used to be a prairie kind of stuff but it's it's just grain fields lentil fields uh canola oil rapeseed they they call it but, but uh, basically it's what canola, canola oil is coming from uh and those those just turn golden yellow 
uh, when the flowers are blooming, the wheat at different times of year when the wheat's first coming up, just these lush green. And then in the fall, especially if it's if there's been something that cleared out the air, because a lot of times the air is a bit hazy, but but in the fall, there's this golden color of, of the ripened grain and the these crystal blue skies, you know, and that contrast, you know, I used to have people, I'd always have students ask me a question. I was like, everybody gets to ask me one question. That may be the only question you ask me all semester, but you're going to ask me one. And one of the questions people would ask is like, what's your favorite color? Well, (laughs) it's contextual. And and one of the things is like that gold and that blue together, you know, or the, uh, there was these, um, they call them burning bushes, I guess. I've seen a few around here, but they don't quite turn as red as as those ones. And when they just catch the light and, and it's like shadow behind them, but they're in the sunlight. You know, so there's these things that happen. And in my mind, I, I, Sitka's always been home for me. It's always where I wanted to be. But I, I never felt like it had the only sort of source of, of beauty. Like you say, to me, everywhere had its little things. In the in the eastern Washington area, there's these little pockets of, of forest where where the water accumulates more. And so there's these little pockets and they're little draws with, with pines and, and these things. Uh, and driving around, you feel like you know a place, but but they're just in a place where you can't see them because there's all the hills. And then you kind of come around a corner and there's this little little grove. And so little things like that, to me, that was, I enjoyed driving the back roads and just seeing, or the old farmhouse, you know, and the, kind of the aesthetics of that. And so I can imagine, I, I only, I think I drove through Iowa once and, and it, I do remember there being, what I remember seems like cornfields. Yes. <laughs> but, and a little bit of like, oh, there's some restored prairie or something like that. But I, my view is that most, probably every place has its own beauty if you're willing to, willing to look and, and spend the time with it. Now, now I visit family in northern Ohio and is very agricultural and can often be very flat. And I really struggle with finding the beauty there, unless you're looking out at Lake Erie. But it all used to be covered in this thing called the Great Black Swamp that Mm. went into Illinois or Indiana. And uh, some of it remains uh, protected wetlands and undeveloped wetlands. And you can turn the corner and you think you're in the the bayou. So it's like just around the corner and uh, your eyes will get a little treat when all they've seen is very flat Cornfields. Well, and you've talked too about the estuary and watching so many different birds. Oh in, yes, in my my mother place. lives on a a pond that used to be a part of a river going into Lake Erie, and she nothing she Swan Lake or or any place that has birds here has nothing on her little pond, and she's in a developed area, and the egrets come in like airplanes, and the herons are there or they aren't there. I haven't figured out. I think when the water rises, the herons go elsewhere, so if it's been a rainy uh, summer, I don't see the the herons there, but she muskrat and deer, deer making out with each other, <laughs> beavers, snakes, uh, you know, and she's just looking out her window in in a place that's uh, a development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's beauty everywhere. Yeah, and it, the the animals and plants, you know, the creatures, many of them, not all of them, but many of them adapt to, especially once they understand, for better and worse, you know, I had a deer visit my yard over the last week and gnaw on a bunch of my apples, which are now gone, which I was not super much a fan of. But <laughs> I'm kind of impressed with its, uh, its like determination, because if it was near your house, it's near that construction. Yeah. But I guess at night, it's they not They probably come early so. in the morning yeah. based on a, f- a few years ago, well, like one summer, they were just there regularly and everything was just getting eaten. And this year, I'd kind of gotten a little complacent because they hadn't been through my yard. Last year, I think they were a little bit 
And you can set up nets to deter. It doesn't take a lot of deterrence because they're just kind of moving through. And if it's easy food, they'll just eat it. And if you make it a little difficult, they'll move to somebody else's yard. Um, but I don't remember deer being in town so much when I was a kid. And I think at some point they just kind of figured out. I remember asking Richard Nelson about it, actually, because he did that research in that book on, on deer. And he said, he said, there are, you know, the pattern seems to be that deer, the, the first ones sort of figure out that, oh, once you understand the traffic noise and what that means, which is not much, just don't get run over. And once you understand how to steer clear of dogs, then the suburbs are really safe and there's a lot of food mm. to eat because the bigger predators don't necessarily want to come into suburbs mm. and nobody's going to be hunting them in the suburbs. How did the deer, though, know that they should be fearful of humans when they get so used to humans? I fear for them. Mm. Well, that's the thing. It's like in town, they don't have to worry about humans. As soon uh, out, as they get a town. little out, you know, if they travel a little, they're in trouble. Well, and so the ones that are in town are probably, I mean, probably part of it's situational. You know, we're not necessarily afraid of a bear in a zoo, but we understand that a bear or, or you know, like, like there's a certain situational element to it, I guess, would be my guess. I don't know. Um, but I think the deer that are in town hang out around town pretty regularly. I just so always they, want to scare them for the purpose of the, scaring yeah. them. <laughs> don't get used to people. But if they're... I don't know. I remember Phil Mooney did some collaring of deer and looking at where they go. And I can't remember what, what they found. But I think what I do remember, it seems like there are some deer that move around quite a bit. And then there are other deer that really stay pretty close. And I'm guessing that many of the town deer, that's what they do. So that's just, they're, they're like town deer. They they know the town. They're not going out where they're going to be getting hunted. They're not okay. far enough away from the road. So I just wondered, maybe the deer here, some of them sort of figured it out and and uh, I find it a little bit annoying when they come through and eat my apple crop, you know, or most of it. It's like in one day, it's like most of, the, most of the apples are gone. And you're like, it was only one month. <laughs> I have this. I probably shouldn't. I don't know if maybe Paul, my, the person I live with, my husband won't hear this. But I feel like I have understand what you're talking about, Matt, when it comes to though the birds, because we have a couple of cherry trees. And I've adjusted my uh, attitude about them a little bit, which is kind of like they get to have some of the crop like they they get to have like there are some that I can't get at the top of the tree anyway you know I don't have a ladder tall enough so um I'm like that that's the, they get to come and eat some of those cherries and Carrie's laughing at me because no I'm laughing knows. at me oh why uh that time we took the net <laughs> down from your cherry trees it was because they were rotting and we wanted the birds to have a chance at them. Yeah. But it was such a bad decision. Such a bad decision. Some of the tree came down with it. Did it? Is that what you're referring no, to? No, no. We just messed up the netting on the tree pretty badly. Yeah. But, well, that's the thing. Is, so like to keep the, you're talking about deterring deer, Matt, and putting netting up and putting a net up on a cherry tree Your is trees a are nightmare. Big. Yeah. And the and netting likes to get caught in things. Like that's what netting, the netting we often use is old uh, fishing netting so it's meant to catch things so and it can uh, be undone more easily than it can be put, put up. back together <laughs> but the birds get some <laughs> cherries yeah yeah so now, yeah. now well, we you share. have those large cherry trees uh, that are the, the cherry trees i have are, are a bit smaller and the birds haven't seemed to found them and so there's that plus i think when you have a I suspect birds, are they mostly crows getting them or are there other? Crows yeah. and ravens. And yeah. actually we get robins too. They like they seem to like the sour cherries better. Oh, they don't okay. come for the sweet ones, but they'll come when the sour ripens a little bit later. Yeah, yeah. And so the I think one year uh, crows 
found they found they annoyed me because they were finding strawberries and they would just pick them even before they were right and they'd like oh nope and just leave them so there's yeah. like these strawberries that weren't ripe yet and they weren't i was like and i think that was a lot of young crows that that particular year but they didn't come back to my yard again and so i remember you all having having um bird challenges and they get onto the crab apples downtown sometimes i've seen them there and uh, you know, in orchards where like that's their business, they need to keep the birds off. They have, yeah, it can be a little challenging uh, to, uh, and a variety of species get into starlings. They'll get into stuff yep. too. And there's, a, so. we've tried different things over the years ourselves, and I know that there, are, yeah, other techniques. You put CDs in your tree or little things that flick, you know, flicker you, around. Or you put a fake owl out. You you could try fake uh, dead crows. Oh. oh, I did see that recently. Yeah. Did that work? Have you heard that's it works? It works at feeders. Um, yeah. You can get Halloween, if you don't want to have it, real oh, dead crow, you can okay. get a Halloween ornament. Uh, Victoria Vosberg uh, had some success. She says that she has to move it around every once in a while. And for your trees, maybe you need to like display it prominently <laughs> as a warning, you know, sort of to the, uh, like like the pirates on their ships, you know, with the with the Skulls. folks that, yeah. Or, or, the, or the folks, you know, that, that, that didn't do things well, but... Um, you know, yeah, it's, it's essentially a warning and they don't like other, they recognize and don't like dead crows. So I don't know if it'd work for your trees or not, but it has had some success for folks that wanted to keep them because they just gorge on bird food <laughs> late, like they empty your feeder in, in a day kind of thing. And so if you are there mostly wanting to feed the smaller songbirds, the sparrows and whatnot, then it's a little frustrating when you have a full feeder that's now not full because the crows came through and ate it all and moved on. So I don't know if that'd work for cherry trees or not. Maybe but, we'll give it a try next yeah. next summer. It is one of the most frustrating things about the birds coming to get the cherries. If you have sort of made peace with that, they're going to get some of them is that they do what you were talking about with like picking the oh. strawberries. Like they pick full branches off because the, the cherry is not ripe yet. So they just end up yanking the whole branch off and then tossing it to the ground. So I'll just come home and be <laughs> littered with like, pars- you know, branches with beautiful clusters of cherries on them. And the whole thing has just been destroyed. Well, I'm going to suggest if you do it, that you plant your dead crow like at night or something, that you're not seen by the crows Very to be planting a dead crow. They will oh. come after us otherwise. Uh, that's what I'd want to avoid. Yeah. They might remember you. Yeah, they, they do have a good memory and recognition. Actually, somebody earlier this summer came and asked me, and they said, they said um, they, they were walking, had a regular walking route. I think it was along Charter Street where this was happening, but the crows would come and attack every time she walked by there and like just like attacking and it didn't seem to be happening to other people <laughs> but they she said did, get, did she know why no and i was like well maybe there was a nest there or something or maybe they remember you from some other thing that upset them but it's like i don't know she's like what can i do i was like an umbrella maybe i don't know so but. matt tell me if i'm way off but i seem to have read research where the crows can somehow communicate to other crows that you're a bad person Person. Yeah, I think I think um, well, Kaylee Swift, I think her name was, uh, w- was what a graduate student. I think uh, if I remember his name right, John Marsleff was was the guy who did some of the original research with like they were wearing masks, uh, and and they would do things to crows. And certainly, the young birds learn it from the adults. And I think there's also it doesn't. I don't think it had to be. I think it could move horizontally as well. Is that these birds are going after, and so the other birds are seeing that and going, "Okay, we see you. We don't like you either." Like a sort of camaraderie there among among crow nation uh, birds that are uh, you know figuring things out. 
And, so smart. Uh, yeah. And so there's that, that, that you can have that, you know, transfer a little bit. I'm not hundred percent sure that's how it worked, but like in my mind, it seems like that could have been, yeah, very much, but I, I'm pretty confident that, that the young birds definitely were, were picking But you're up. thinking they observed the other birds and copied their behavior. Well, they observed. And in my mind, they were just sharing stories. Well, and that's what I don't know. Like, like my guess is that, yeah, so I guess the question would be, and if you wanted to set up an experiment, if these birds never saw the person in the mask, would they still attack the person in the mask um, based on, yeah, and I'm that I don't know. i look up some research now. Yeah, that would be an interesting question. My guess is not, but but I don't know, you know, crows are, I, I wouldn't put it past crows, let's just put it that way. <clears throat> they, they have their, their uh, cleverness. I did want to ask you something, Matt, mm-hmm. if we do have time for it, because um, we didn't get a chance to kind of saved it from our show this morning on the library show. But I know you went to ADAC. I did. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that experience and what you saw, what you maybe were most excited by or surprised by or just what you saw. Yeah, excited by is, you know, because I've already expressed my disinclination to travel, of course. So I went out there. It was a family trip. My son really wanted to go to ADAC. You go to ADAC. ADAC is actually the furthest south town in Alaska. Uh, not something that many people realize, but the Aleutians wow. swing low enough there that it's further south than Ketchikan. And it is way out there. It's only 180 miles, I think, from the international dateline. It's it's not that far away from the international dateline. Uh, there are some Aleutian islands that are further out, but not, not many. Uh, you can fly there on Alaska Airlines. It's got an amazing large runway. There used to be a, a naval base there. Uh, it, which is was decommissioned in the 90s. So the community, it's 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 an interesting place. Uh, there's signs all over, like, only dig, n- don't dig here ever. Um, you know, don't dig below two feet without contacting the Navy. Because, like, apparently they just dump stuff all over oh. the place. It's part of, because it was built up in World War II, and, and they probably did some cleanup. But it's, there's no forest. There's There's little places, pockets of trees, which probably people brought in trees, and then some of them are reproducing. I'm curious about that in the long run, you know, what how, how that ends up looking. Uh, they, the, at the airport, there's a sign, the Aleutians, the birthplace of winds, and it was definitely windy there. It, the climate is not really that much different than here, I don't think. Connor commented, he goes, it's cold here. And it's like, well, I don't know that it's actually that cold if you were walking out on the beach at Totem Park, for example, and the wind. Like, it's chilly out there. In the when it's forty, like you just feel cold, but then you step into the woods and you're out of the wind, and it doesn't feel so cold anymore. The mm-hmm. thing on ADEC is there's no place to step out of the wind. You can, you know, find an old building foundation or something where you can sit behind and be in the in a little pocket of, of calmer, and then it doesn't feel cold. But you're pretty much exposed all the time. But it's so far west that it's not so unusual for Asian birds to show up there, and so that's what draws birders out there, and that's why my son wanted to go. And we saw, we saw, there's a number of species that just live out there, common eiders. We saw Kitlitzis murlets, red-faced cormorant. So there's a number of uh, those sorts of species that are just common. Uh, gray-crowned rosy finches are all over the place. Rock ptarmigan are all over the place. You know, we can see those if we get way up on Bear Mountain here, but uh, those, they're just like common. They're the most common birds we were seeing. Um, so there, so we did get a couple of Asian birds. The best bird that we got was... Um, Black-tailed godwits, which are pretty unusual for North America. And I guess their population's not that great to begin with. So that's part of the reason they're not really all that common. Uh, and the other birders that were there were pretty excited. Connor and I found that found the pair of those. And Were they excited to talk to you? 
Um, well, we talked. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, one of the things that there's a guy that's been going there for a couple decades now, and, and he has a website about birding ADAC, and he encourages <laughs> people to bring radios. So um, they uh, we had a little radio, just not like a VHF, but just like a little Motorola, whatever kind of uh, radio. And so you communicate if you're seeing something, because there's not that, there's more road than. Well, there's not really more road than Sitka. Uh, oh. So you can, there's some back roads and stuff that you can go gravel roads. It's, it's kind of tough on vehicles, but uh, you can, you drive around and you just drive circuits around basically checking different places throughout the day because birds come and go. And then if anybody sees anything, they call it in on the radio. And then if it's something people want to see, they'll go see it. And so that's cool. one of the ways that people are communicating there. I was a little early in the season. The plants were just barely coming up. My brother spent a lot more time looking at plants. I was just trying to keep up with Connor looking at birds uh, and, and the only occasional uh, plant. People go there for caribou hunting. Mm. Uh, not so much the time of year we were there in the spring, much more often in the fall. But the island's pretty large. The part you can drive is relatively small, but you can hike. It's like everything's open. There's no forest. There's no brush. So it's just like tundra. It, but the tussocks... Uh, in the places where the grass tussocks are, it's kind of like it's uh, it's difficult walking, as it turns out, because <laughs> you're on these things and you can kind of walk between them, but they're they're close enough together. You're sort of like plowing through them. And, you know, you might be the grass might be, you know, the thick the thick part where it's hard might be waist deep. And then there's the looser stuff that's going up to your shoulders or something like that wow. when you're walking or you can try and step on the tussocks. But, of course, then they kind of bend over or whatever. And so it's a little bit sometimes you find trails and stuff, but sometimes it's just like, especially if you're chasing after your 20, 20 year old son, who's just <laughs> ambitious to get somewhere and doesn't really worry about the easiest way at his uh, level of, of enthusiasm and, and physical ability. So are these trees, do you know what they are and are they tree like or shrub like? Well, so the trees that are there are, there's a few larger ones, especially with buildings and by larger that I mean, nothing like the trees that we take. that would be more like, you know, like the the biggest tree that I saw is probably the size of maybe the pine trees that are over in front of UAS. Oh, um, pretty so big. That yeah, but that was one tree in front of one building, yeah. which was protecting it. Mm-hmm. The spruce trees, uh, there are spruce trees there, Sitka spruces. Um, there was a couple of them I saw that might have been fifteen or twenty feet tall, so not not big. They're like you might see growing up on a shoreline, uh, where where it's a little bit of uplift, so they're relatively mm-hmm. young looking, or out on the um, out on the windswept. Uh, islands and stuff but w- th- they got larger where they were in a kind of a little lee and they didn't ha- have to bear the brunt of the wind all the time if they were out at all then they were very much sculpted by the wind there was a few willow thickets that were again tended to be pretty wind sculpted hmm. um, but yeah it's species that I, again I think were introduced there by the folks um, I did see a couple of hemlocks but mostly it was spruce trees and then a, and a couple of pines well, I should probably wrap this up. So any, any other things that you want to mention here before we leave, Brooke? Um, I know. I mean, I guess I noticed a few. I've been having more of an eye on toads from my travels down uh, further south than Sitka. And as a result, I've noticed a few more while in Sitka. So that's been kind of interesting. That's the last thing I'll say. Oh, nice. Yeah. Toads are, toads are one of those mysterious things that went away for a while and seem to have come back a bit in recent years. Thank you for having us on. Yeah, well, thank you. I always appreciate doing the little crossover. I think it might have been a couple of years since we last did this, so it's fun. Possibly. It's time. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for suggesting this, Brooke, and, uh, and thanks for joining us as well, Carrie. Thank you, Matt. 
You've been listening to a conversation I recorded this past week with Brooke Schaefer and Carrie Sagel. I want to thank Brooke for suggesting this crossover with the Sitka Library Show and Sitka Nature Show. And thank you for joining us here this week on the Sitka Nature Show. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. I'll look forward to being back in a couple of weeks. Until then, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.